From student loans to unpaid mortgages, it is no doubt that America is deeply entrenched in a public debt crisis. As of May 2020, the U.S. public debt was around $25.8 trillion, with consumer debt accounting for $14.3 trillion of the overall debt burden. With more than 40 million Americans unemployed at the wake of COVID-19, what is the future of debt in America? We speak with Nami Baral, the founder and chief empathy officer of Harvest Platform, a startup focused on helping everyday Americans eliminate and rise from bad debt. You know, when you look at America and, you know, how this entire economy has been built, um, it is built on the idea of credit being productive. But I saw that it was not productive and it was actually turning into this like constant stress factor in people's lives. And on top of that, I saw people really paying thousands of dollars in bank fees every single year. Right. And that was one of those things that I really, really felt like, OK, you know, people are already struggling to save. They're already living paycheck to paycheck. And that's the sad reality for 80 percent of America. How can we actually remove a lot of the stress related to their debt and how can we make their lives a little bit more productive? My name is Jenny Dadari, And I'm Caroline Klowinowski. And this is The Utopian. I wanted to ask you, uh, where exactly did the idea for Harvest Platform come? And then you list yourself as a chief empathy officer instead of a chief executive officer. And I love that. And I wanted you to describe the framing, the decisions behind that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me give you a little bit of background on how I just started, uh, you know, at least in, um, in terms of my career. So um, I, um, in the formative stages of my career, I was an investment banker and I was doing, you know, uh, M&A deals for large cap companies, uh, you know, uh, huge companies who were trying to buy, uh, you know, other companies uh, for billions of dollars. And um, that was like my intro into the world of finance. And that's really where I gained a lot of knowledge and expertise and, you know, that financial skill set. Um, I did that for a couple of years, and then I decided to move into the world of tech because it was really booming at the time. And then also for me personally, I wanted to be in uh, in an industry that was experiencing a better growth curve than traditional finance. And uh, this was like, you know, back in the time, like of the last financial crisis, right? I had graduated in the heels of that. So uh, for me, it was uh, imperative to get uh, knowledge of another industry and understand uh, experience a very different kind of growth curve. So I ended up going to another startup, um, which uh, was doing building real time negotiation products, but for uh, advertising. So advertising on mobile, uh, you know, apps and, you know, just trying to democratize the world of apps uh, so that uh, developers can continue to, uh, you know, make some money while uh, continuing to build apps. And we're doing that through real-time negotiation for ad-related prices. Um, so very, very niche industry. And uh, that was really where I started, you know, essentially gaining experience as a, a, a revenue exec as well as a product manager um, and building real-time negotiation products in general. 
that company ended up being acquired by Twitter very uh, soon after we launched the monetizable product. And I had been at Twitter and this was Twitter pre-IPO as well. So uh, I stayed on at Twitter for another five years. Um, and so in that process, I obviously uh, had the opportunity to, uh, you know, grow myself personally, professionally, also, you know, really grow as a people manager. And I was in charge of uh, a team that was responsible for uh, more than a billion dollar in revenue every single year. And I had, uh, you know, teams all over the world that I was responsible for. So very interesting, uh, you know, trajectory from that. Uh, but when I really uh, decided to leave Twitter to, uh, you know, start my own company, it was a very different idea, right? Um, so initially, the thought was to build a female-focused uh, investment platform and to really encourage more women to the world of investing because what I had really observed around me was uh, a lot of my friends, despite the know-how, despite having the money to invest, uh, and despite you know your um, understanding of them as really, really motivated individuals who want to you know essentially build up their savings and everything, I realized that a lot of my friends were investing and really shied away from the idea of investing. So in the beginning, I decided to leave Twitter because. I, I really wanted to solve this problem around, uh, you know, um, women around me not investing. And I, wanted, I, I was trying to build a product that could help them. Um, but then, um, you know, as, as a product manager, obviously, over, uh, over the course of the several years I'd been in that capacity, I had learned, obviously, do not just be biased to your own idea and hypothesis. Always test it out, right? Iterate, test with data, talk to customers. So I built a very... Uh, you know, simple MVP of that investment platform and then, uh, you know, released it to the market and started getting on calls with the customers all over uh, the U.S. And this time it was initially that product was not just limited to women. And in that uh, process, I got the chance to, you know, speak to people all over America, you know, people in Alabama, people in Oklahoma, people in Alaska, people in San Francisco, New York, people from, uh, you know, all throughout the spectrum of, you know, where they are with their finances, their age groups, and just trying to get as much data as possible. And in that process, I had this like aha moment, right? What I was realizing when I was getting on these calls with, you know, people all over America and really trying to understand what is it about their finances that they need the most amount of help with, I got a glimpse into really understanding their deepest worries about their own financial life, right? I saw them really, really deeply drowned in debt, uh, debt across mortgages, student loans, personal loans, credit cards, auto loans, and just so much debt in their life that they continuously felt underwater, right? And this was, you know, I, I really uh, thought that, you know, when you look at America and, you know, how this entire economy has been built, um, it is built on the idea of credit being productive. But I saw that it was not productive and it was actually turning into this like constant stress factor in people's lives. And on top of that, I saw people really paying thousands of dollars in bank fees every single year, right? And that was one of those things that I really, really felt like, okay, you know, people are already struggling to save. They're already living paycheck to paycheck and that's the sad reality for 80% of America. How can we actually remove a lot of the stress related to their debt and how can we make their lives a little bit more productive? 
So that's when I really realized that, yes, you know, investing and additional, you know, savings, these are all like, you know, really nice, positive, glamorous products in finance that are extremely useful. But before you get somebody from one to hundred, you have to get them from like negative hundred to zero, right? So that was the idea, you know, that I got really from speaking to customers in the formative, uh, you know, stages of the MVP of my initial, uh, you know, very different product. And then I decided to pivot away from the idea of building an investment product to really building a platform that can eliminate bad debt for Americans. And we are, and that's what we have built today. We have built a platform that can help average Americans, Americans that are living paycheck to paycheck, reduce their overall fee burden, reduce their overall debt, and help them move to more productive forms of credit. And then um, the other thing that you had mentioned, and I'm glad that you noticed it, uh, was uh, I don't call myself chief executive officer. I call myself chief empathy officer. And it's true because, you know, once again, from the genesis of how I started this company, it was truly born from having empathy for the people that I spoke with and really empathizing with their situations and really trying so passionately to make their lives better and make their lives better tangibly, like help them bring more money in, in you know, food into the table, money back into their bank accounts and really help them build emergency savings and you know, make material changes to their life. So this, it's something that is true for the entire DNA of our company and it's really the way my entire team operates. And it's something that I'm incredibly proud of to you know, not, really be, um, not really be CEO for CEO's sake, but really be a CEO that can make some amount of uh, tangible social good uh, for the users that we work with. Um, but you mentioned that you are helping American society el eliminate bad debt in their life. So I guess a question I have is, when does debt become something that is no longer productive, but something that is detrimental to the entire economy and also to an individual's life? That's a great question. And this is, this is, uh, you know, uh, this is one of those differentiations that is like, you know, really, really makes a tangible amount of difference in people's lives is, you know, generally the idea of credit itself is not bad, right? Like if you look at the history of human, you know, humanity, like money as a form of credit has lasted as long as man himself, right? So, um, you know, that, the idea of like, you know, having some sort of credit or people lending money to others is not inherently bad in itself because it can accelerate a lot of innovation and it can help people in their times of need. But, you know, think about how credit itself is supposed to work and how debt has evolved in this, uh, in, in, in America um, in particular over the last several decades, right? Um, credit card is supposed to be something that, you know, okay, you know, it can be, um, it can be um, a source of uh, money for you if you want to start a new business or you want to start something productive that can, you know, really help improve your overall lifestyle and improve your other additional income uh, potential. Uh, you're supposed to get student loans so that you can, you know, graduate from a good school and get a, a good job. And once again, like, you know, uh, hoping that that, uh, that that loan is going to give you more opportunities to really elevate yourself. Um, similar things with personal loans and, you know, other forms of loans, they're supposed to be there for, you know, really helping you accelerate the kinds of things that can do for your own upliftment. 
But over time, right, like especially over the last several decades, like incomes have stagnated, college tuition and college costs have like skyrocketed, right? And then personal loans, credit cards, you know, they are, they, the amount of interest rates that uh, many of these lenders charge are actually above the, you know, the state-specific uh, state usury laws. Like, you know, in many cases, there are certain loopholes that allow them to charge you know, incredible amount of interest rates to people, despite the states themselves, you know, capping the interest rates at like 10%, 12%, 15%. So you can see that, you know, income hasn't really increased much. The opportunities for jobs or like, you know, the, the right kind of jobs that can be, um, you know, fulfilling for your life and, you know, can give you a tangible, good lifestyle has not really increased as much. But the costs of living have increased, the cost of school has increased, the cost of everything has increased in general. So that's when, you know, really credit becomes debt. Credit becomes debt when you do not have the ability to actually pay it back reasonably, despite how hard you try, right? Like when you, when you have student loans that are going to haunt you your entire lives, not just a couple of years, not just, you know, after getting a job, uh, you know, for another couple of years, you try to, you know, pay that off. But it's something that is now going to haunt a lot of people their entire lives, right? Same thing with credit cards. A lot of people take more time to pay off their credit cards than their entire mortgages. For many mortgages, people, you know, are, you know, generally they expect to pay them within 30 years, but then even after the 30 year comes and goes and people are still not able to pay it off. So that's really when, you know, uh, the idea of credit being productive ceases to be productive and turns into this like, you know, constant nagging source of stress and really um, hinders you from moving up in life. I'm wondering, um, like, what demographics do banks usually prey upon and who is more likely to fall for it? Because I can imagine um, my parents are immigrants. So people who don't have English as their first language might not understand and uh, or don't have the social networks like friends of friends, family members who sort of have knowledge about bank fees and help them guide people like immigrants or people who don't have uh, university or higher education backgrounds. So at least that's what my thinking is. I'm wondering if it's more broad than that. So, um, you know, initially, uh, that is uh, the inclination that many people have. It's for people who may not, not be able to, you know, really understand how they're in with, really understand the terms of service and things like that. But I think the, the, the problem is a lot broader, right? And, and data shows that. So what we see is uh, this, like, you know, bank fee burden being high is something that we consistently see across uh, you know, demographics across, um, uh, you know, across even like, you know, education, um, uh, levels of education. Obviously, you know, there are uh, certain anecdotal uh, information that you can always find on like, you know, one extreme versus another. But what we do see is that uh, generally, you know, when you go and sign up uh, for a bank account, uh, regardless of your level of education, like you're given this like huge booklet of uh, rules upon rules upon, upon rules, right? So no one 
regardless of how educated they are or how you know uh, how disciplined they are about their finances has the time or the energy or even the ability to interpret all of this legalese right so banks are not charging fees because they are not charging fees illegally they have uh, the ability to charge many of these fees because there are written contracts that you know you as a customer has signed up for but there are nuances in which these fees are charged for example certain banks tend to reorder your transactions uh, what that means is rather than uh, processing your transactions in the order in which you did those transactions they have the ability to order them in any way uh, they, they deem uh, to be fit right what that does is, you know, rather than you being charged, let's say, one overdraft fee, um, you could be charged five overdraft fees. You could be charged overdraft fee uh, because you, um, you know, you opted into overdraft protection without any knowledge of actually you opting into overdraft protection because it's somewhere like, you know, buried in one of those pages in that hundred page booklet. Um, you know, so there's a lot of those kinds of nuances that tend to happen just because the existing banking system is extremely convoluted and there's a lot of legalese, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, information that you have to take in at the time of opening your bank accounts or your credit card statements. And regardless of how much you really intend to do it the right way, most of the time, uh, most people do not have the ability or the know-how to really interpret those in the right way. So you mentioned that the current system is extremely convoluted, which, you know, based on everything that you're saying, it does seem to be true. So we're seeing that what's happening is not just a once or two time problem. It's a structural problem. But I don't think before this conversation, I had really heard about this issue and heard it highlighted in the way that you're currently highlighting it to us. So why aren't more people aware of it and proactive in changing what's happening? What is the reason that banks are so often given a free pass in this way and these problems are just continuing to exist? Yes. So um, there's, uh, there's a twofold answer to that. One is, uh, you know, even when you assume that banks are working with the right intent, and honestly, you know, I wouldn't always blame the banks for the way things are currently, right? There is a lot of regulations that they have to follow. There is a lot of uh, structure that they have to provide to customers from everywhere. They have their own, like, you know, overhead and cost that they need to figure out. They also have to, you know, um, most of them tend to be public companies. So that means they have to cater to their shareholder, uh, you know, uh, desires and always look at uh, keeping their stock prices up. So it's not that bank always doesn't try to do the right thing, but there are, once again, structural, you know, things that need to change for them to truly, truly, truly act on behalf of the customer rather than act on behalf of itself, which is obviously you know, just human nature, right? You always tend to uh, look out for yourself and you have to look out for yourself before you look out for others. So, uh, you know, banks uh, tend to do that in a much higher capacity because they are corporations. Um, second thing, there are regulations that are put into place to, you know, protect consumers from many of these things. But one regulation is difficult to put into practice in terms of like actually building up the tech structures and actually building up processes that can be implemented consistently over thousands of branches and thousands of you know essentially uh, so while serving millions of customers the other thing is 
even when the bank tries really, really hard to you know, do those things or implement those regulations properly, um, many of the, you know, much of the infrastructure that has been built within built in the 60s, 70s, or at least, you know, the architecture, the technical architecture in which they are built is not really up to par with modern standards. What that means is they behave as if they are still operating off of the mainframes of the 70s, right? Um, and so, you know, obviously along the way, they have acquired several other banks and, you know, they are trying to integrate all of those systems at once. And it is very difficult for banks to make sure that all the systems are talking to each other in the right ways. And that obviously results in, in many cases, an honor code. If the customer cares to come back to you and ask for something, listen to them and try to help them. But if the customer doesn't care, then let's leave it be because it is a very, very inherently difficult problem to solve, right? So those are the different kinds of factors that go into play, even when uh, you know, we are aware of the, about the structural issues with these kind of things. There is not, uh, even uh, when there is regulation that is being put into place to counter these measures, it is rarely implemented in the right way, despite best intentions. And we always assume best intentions. Uh, once again, we have empathy for everybody, bank included. Um, at the same, but at the same time, you know, we see errors being made all over. So these bank fees uh, and the overcharge of them, the banks are basically trying to take advantage of loopholes and uh, that either regulations have created for them or not really created for them, but are built in. Um, by happenstance or otherwise, um, and in their, say, terms of use, um, mm. and they're just taking advantage of the structure that is there, right? Yeah, they, I, I think they're generally operating within guidelines of what they're supposed to be doing. It's not always perfect, right? And um, moreover, once again, they're operating with the customer's consent when it uh, when, when, when they're doing these things. Now, there, ha there are several instances in which customers obviously have cared enough to make a noise and there are several class action lawsuits that have been filed against banks for once again the predatory practices like you know reordering of transactions which tends to really really be the root cause of these like thousands of dollars of fees being charged to customers and so whenever things like that happen banks have you know obviously uh, listened to those or like you know have been forced to listen to those kinds of things and try to make amends that said, there are 15,000 financial institutions in the U.S. You know, when you look at you know, a customer having financial relationship, they may have checking account, their main checking account with one of the large banks or one of the you know, local credit unions that they work with. But generally, the ecosystem of you know, finances in a particular American's life is you know, anywhere between like, you know, seven to eight cards in their wallet, right? So it's difficult to manage all of those things at once. And inevitably, there is going to be a mistake at one point or another. And that's also something that, you know, we have tried to solve with our technology is rather than, you know, trying to just educate and educate the customer and, you know, like get them to take certain actions, which they do not have time or the know-how for, we try to automate all of those things for them so that there is no uh, margin of error there right and so this is true for most of the banks that we are building currently with, within our uh, you know product platform um, but uh, that is also where most of these like you know, issues come 
in the sense that we are so entrenched into you know having multiple cards and multiple financial accounts that it is so difficult to keep track of what's happening with each and every one of them. Hey all, this is Dalvin here, the co-producer of the Utopian Podcast with Jenny and Caroline. I just wanted to tell all of you about a useful service that our current guest is associated with that you all might also find interesting, and that is Harvest. If you're entrenched in debt or need help negotiating bank fees, feel free to check out NAMI's startup Harvest. Harvest helps you negotiate your bank fees like overdrafts, credit card interest charges, and more. Harvest has already served hundreds of thousands of customers and has gotten back more than a million dollars in refunds this year alone. To sign up, just go to joinharvest.com and you can then just follow the instructions on the page. It's a really interesting up-and-coming service out there for all of you who are just trying to navigate your own financial issues and we support NAMI and the entire Harvest team's mission. So yeah, just feel free to sign up at joinharvest.com and then follow the instructions from there. Alright, I'm not going to hold things up any longer. Back to the episode. So what are some of the types of predatory transactions that the current automated setup that you have recognizes and tries to stop? And, you know, building off of that, you mentioned earlier that banks are still operating off of a structure that was established in the 70s. They have not yet transformed themselves to meet the needs of a current modern structure. What would that modern structure look like? So yeah. those are two uh, slightly different questions. but Yes, yes. So uh, our system is able to look into transactional uh, information from uh, a customer's bank account and really identify different kinds of fees you have paid. Regardless of whether you as a customer, whether you have a knowledge about those fees or not, you will be able to see our system will be able to parse all of that, right? So we see fees anywhere from, you know, obviously the top fees are in uh, overdrafts, late fees, insufficient fund fees, ATM charges, foreign transaction fees, uh, general, like, you know, those kinds of fees that, you know, most people know about. But then there are also fees like fixed fees, uh, you know, sweep fees, uh, you know, other kinds of, you know, statement related fees or, you know, just like, you know, paper mailing fee, things like that, that many people may not have an idea that they're paying. Um, and then the second thing is we also negotiate interest charges, um, and that is something that most people are not aware about, right? So most people think that, okay, you know, I, I got a credit card, and uh, I did agree to the terms of service. Once again, I did agree to paying the interest with this, so why would a bank really um, be interested in giving me back money? Um, you know, in these uh, scenarios. So in those cases, we you know we really automate 
the process of uh, you know really portraying you as a customer based on your financial profile, of course, uh, about a customer who uh, the bank would want to retain. And if you are the type of customer that the bank would want to retain in the current competitive landscape uh, for finances, once again, the bank is competing with uh, you know another seven, eight uh, you know cards to be to have that position in your wallet. They do care about you know customer retention and making sure that they preserve that position on top of the wallet. So there are several you know use cases that we identify in understanding what is the right way to negotiate and what uh, use case applies so that it is within the bank's uh, you know uh, ability to give you a refund as well as it is something tangible that you personally can uh, benefit from as a customer. So our system scans all of those different kinds of fees, um, the common fees and the uncommon fees, and then automatically understands uh, the use case for the negotiation. Um, now, uh, to, for your second question about like, you know, what really needs to be modernized, uh, you know, in uh, the banking ecosystem, for example, um, so one of the things that, you know, generally tends to happen is batch transactions, right? So when you think about the system of reordering transactions or the reason banks can, you know, order transactions in any order at the, at the end of the day, many of the times this is related to, you know, banks not actually being able to process things in real time. So they would have to wait until the end of the day to process all of your transactions. Um, that obviously is something that needs to be modernized and then that is also a very complicated ledger-based accounting systems that uh, there are several new fintech companies that are trying to you know essentially uh, improve upon those things but banks are large bureaucratic entities if they have to if they make one change one mistake uh, it affects tens of millions of customers it's people's money so you have to tread very 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 carefully with that and this is true for even like, you know, small, nimble fintechs, but you can imagine how hard it is for, uh, you know, the larger banks to, uh, to even, even when they try very hard to move to that kind of infrastructure. So it's there, I think many of them are trying to do that, but at the same time, the process is extremely slow. The other thing is, you know, money not really appearing in your accounts in real time, right? When your employer, uh, you know, gives you uh, a paycheck and, you know, um, like you know puts money in your account it gets immediately debited from um from the employer's account but then to reach your uh you know your accounts it can take several days at least two days but in many cases even up to five days some cases seven days depending on who you bank with so part of that is obviously uh, existing structures in which like you know banks may decide to keep that money for a couple more days even when it's already with them um, and that tends to happen as well. Uh, but then at the same time, in many cases, the ACH technology, right? Like the ability for people, uh, for banks to transfer money from one bank to another is once again, very archaic. And there are uh, steps that are being taken right now to make real time ACH, which means like, you know, if um, you know, money is taken out of one account via ACH today, uh, ideally it would be on another person's bank account the same day. So that those there are those kinds of things that are currently being you know experimented with and that they're in that like you know trial phase and it has not uh, it has not gotten um, you know I guess uh, extensive implementation yet but there is uh, an effort from all financial institutions not just big banks and not just small banks 
for small fintechs, but everybody to try and get to that newer, more innovative stage. But uh, for the big banks to really, really make that happen, it is going to take some amount of time because once again, you're looking at people's money, you want them to really make sure that they're doing the right thing, which means uh, extreme amount of time delay in these kinds of things. With our conversation about loans, it got me thinking about what people can do if they see or how they can check if they're being pushed into expensive mortgages. And I'm thinking about Wells Fargo and uh, I think they're, uh, a couple years back, they, they got prosecuted for, um, you know, pushing these expensive mortgages to like black and Latino people. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, are there any structural um, institutions that uh, can help people understand uh, whether they're getting pushed into a corner and they don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this has to do with just one lack of understanding about like you know newer kinds of companies. Um, and generally, there's a lot of um, social trust issues when it comes to any kind of financial thing, right? So partially, it is uh, you know up to the customers themselves as well, regardless of the demographic that they, in which they are in, they do tend to trust big banks over smaller fintechs uh, just because they know that, oh, you know, I can just easily walk into the branch and, uh, you know, talk to someone in person. But because they tend to, you know, value those kinds of things, once again, the bank has an upper hand in um, in giving what it what it feels comfortable with, which, you know, comes after allowing for all of the overhead costs of maintaining those branches or maintaining those like, you know, in-person communications for the customer. So generally it is a lack of, you know, understanding and awareness about what alternatives exist. Um, But then the second thing is also about just, uh, you know, the existing credit scoring system, right? So, our traditional credit scoring system has, uh, there, there's good and bad to it, but um, generally for, uh, for, uh, for the minority population, for traditionally disadvantaged, traditionally disenfranchised populations, um, they tend to not really have good credit scores because credit has always, you know, the traditional credit models have always rewarded uh, you know, just you having access to a lot of credit to begin with, you having the ability to pay back everything on time, you understanding that, you know, if you have a low credit score to begin with, you never qualify for, you know, uh, lower rates, which means you get deeper and deeper into debt. And essentially, you get pushed into that particular, like, you know, vicious circle, right? So really, I think, there are opportunities to uh, to revolutionize how the traditional credit scoring model works with alternative forms of data. And that's also actually something that we as a company at Harvest that we're working uh, to you know, essentially uh, innovate um, in the sense that alongside the traditional credit scores, are there other elements uh, that speak more volumes about your worthiness, your ability to pay back your debt and your willingness to pay back your debt and how that, you know, debt really manifests in your life. Um, Can it be, you know, shown through other forms of you being disciplined about your finances? Can it be shown through rent or utility payments that you make on time? Can it be shown through, you know, the amount of discipline you exercise on your checking accounts? How much non-essential spending that you don't do and how much essential spending that you really do and how much you focus on really, you know, essentially making sure that uh, 
uh, the money in your account is used in the right kind of things, utilizing a lot of those signals and a ton of other, you know, literally tens of thousands of data signals that we get from our, you know, artificial intelligence engine, it is able to make better predictions about your credit worthiness. And I think those kinds of opportunities is really going to open up the spectrum and provide better forms of uh, these kinds of, you know, lending products and any kind of, you know, financial products to customers. So I think one, we need openness uh, towards new forms of technology. Uh, do your due diligence. Obviously, there is no shortage of scams. Um, once again, uh, you know, when it comes to money, there is a lot of bad actors out there as well. But provided you have done the due diligence, give a chance to uh, to other fintechs that you have not, you may not have seen before, because they may be, you know, trying to work on the things that are that have not been democratized to you, but can be uh, made more easily available to you if you try to kind of extend outside of that big bank bubble. So, from the things that you listed, that are alternatives to deciding if a person is quote unquote worthy of being given a loan or something like that. What are some of the ideas that are being pushed forward? And what do you, this is not entirely your, um, well, well I, I think it is, so I'll ask it anyway, but what's the future of regulatory policy in helping companies like you achieve your mission better, but also in helping the communities that you're trying to serve? Yeah. Um, so um, regulation, uh, I think in terms of what um, what regulators are trying to do and in terms of what the government is trying to push for, there are um, there are there are some good signs that you know once again uh, the emergence of a pandemic and you know how people are affected by something like this, uh, overdraft fees or any kind of you know like you know, lack of uh, productive credit to customers that are being uh, you know, doubly disadvantaged due to a pandemic. I think there is a lot of heightened attention that is being put into those kinds of things. And there is regulatory attention there. Um, so, uh, you know, there are several senators who have pushed bills towards, okay, can we completely eliminate fees during the duration of the pandemic? And if that is something that can be pushed out, maybe it has lingering effects and maybe, uh, you know, we can get rid of fees altogether. That said, it is very difficult to get, you know, bipartisan support in many of these uh, different bills because, once again, uh, there are pros and cons to, uh, you know, shareholder value versus, uh, you know, what the regulation really does for consumers. So, you know, there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of lobbying effects that happen, right? So. Um, the, the world in which we want, you know, once again, this is the utopian. So the utopia in which a no fee world really exists is um, it, it is available within like, you know, newer fintechs, but for it to comprehensively happen in our whole uh, financial ecosystem, I think it will take some time because even after regulation is uh, brought forward, the implementation can take decades. Um, same thing with, uh, with, with credit. I mean, regulators have already uh, you know, uh, said that they are more willing to accept alternative forms of credit scoring models because they can be, um, you know, they can be more predictive and they can be more, uh, you know, they can provide leading indicators of risk. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that, you know, you need to really look at new upcoming emerging innovation for and understand machine learning models and make sure that they're not being biased towards the protected class. 
So there's a lot of, you know, give and take in these uh, relationships, but I would definitely like to highlight that regulatory environment, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, um, regulators uh, beginning to look at fintechs a little bit more seriously and understanding the pros that it brings to the table has really uh, increased in the last several years. And my hope is that this uh, pandemic actually accelerates that opportunity to give, um, you know, give uh, a, a better a path forward for fintechs to be commonplace. I'm wondering who your biggest supporters are in terms of funding. Um, I, I'm not sure is, if banks are, are, would be supportive of uh, you technically taking away their uh, fees and another like source of revenue for them. And yeah, how, do you, how, do your, how, does, how does your company keep afloat? Yeah, so we are a VC-backed company. We are uh, we are we're based uh, we are headquartered in New York, and we are lucky to have been um, supported by uh, some of the top VCs uh, in, in 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 America. So we have Kleiner Perkins, we have Lake House VC, and we also actually have banks that are supporting us as uh, you know investors in our company. Um, for example, Barclays Bank, one of the largest banks in the world, is uh, an investor in the company. Um, and so, uh, you know, when it comes to fees, once again, um, you know, there is uh, this initial uh, idea that, oh, you know, um, if you negotiate away fees, it's uh, bad for the bank because it takes away revenue. Yes, to a certain extent, that is true. But then the alternative of that is actually it helps you, um, you know, retain your customers. And once again, we are focusing completely on leveraging artificial intelligence to identify the right use case for the customer and really bring the customer that the bank should care to you know essentially highlight those kinds of customers to the bank itself so it means that you know uh, you know all in all the bank would benefit from being able to uh, you know get customers that are healthier in their uh, in their management of their finances and then these are also customers that you know when the bank lends uh, credit to they tend to be uh, credit worthy, once again, not just in the traditional sense, but also in the modern sense of the world. So we are trying to improve the bottom line of the banks. And we, uh, you know, I think we want to uh, exist in, uh, in a world in which, we, in which we are symbiotic to banks and we can help each other because ultimately what we truly care about is the end customer, right? Both us and the bank. So I, I really like, I mean, I don't like the reality of it, but I like that you mentioned some of the implications of just something as simple as a bank fee. I, I wanted you to expand more about more on how something as small as a bank fee can have really large implications on the macro economy. You, you kind of alluded to how um, even banks are getting involved with this mission because they realize that there is a bigger impact beyond just their um, revenue or their source of income being taken away. But I was also thinking about it in terms of how when people are deeply in debt, they can't consume as much, they can't invest as much. And I just wanted you to expand on the implications that something so seemingly insignificant can have on our economy as a whole. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So think about, uh, you know, the general makeup of the American economy right now, right? Like Ocean Shambles. Um, the average American does not have even $400 uh, of savings in the case of an emergency, but the overall amount of debt that they have, even when you don't count mortgages, is $38,000 per household, okay? 
$38,000 of debt without mortgages for, uh, you know, the makeup of a typical consumer who does not have $400 in their, uh, you know, savings account, for example, right? So when you begin to look into things like that, the, the picture of an economy that is really, really drowning in debt becomes extremely clear. So when you just look at unsecured consumer credit, uh, personal loans, student loans, and credit cards, that alone is a $3 trillion problem, right? And so when you look at it as, okay, you know, who can really pay off, uh, you know, a, a, cred a credit card or, you know, can you actually make the payments on your student loans and things like that? Um, when 80% of the population is living paycheck to paycheck, that's really the people who have all of that debt, right? And so you are always going from one paycheck to another, and you're literally, you know, waiting for your next paycheck to pay all of your bills all the time, consistently, month after month after month, year after year after year. And this situation doesn't end. Now imagine, right, like you're already living life at the edge because, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck and you have another, you know, $300 of bank fees to pay. Let's say, you know, one, you're doing everything properly and you have your, you know, numbers down to the last dollar and like everything is going okay. But all of a sudden, uh, you know, there is a health related emergency and you have to pay another $500 to the hospital. What happens in that case, right? What happens in that case is you probably overdraft your account for $500 and then you have no way of actually paying all of the fees that are being, you know, uh, incurred into your account because you have no other source of income, right? Um, so the alternative that you have is once again, you try to get another credit card and you maybe try to get another loan and you fall more and more into this like predatory cycle of, okay, you know, I'm not gonna be able to get another credit card from, you know, this bank at a good rate. So let me go to this payday lender, um, you know, on the other side of the street. So then, you know, that situation perpetuates itself and people get once again, more and more deeply mired into this entire situation. So like, you know, the $3 trillion of debt that we have built was not just built with productive means, right? It, it is because of things like these, you know, a small little, you know, um, I guess molehill of fees becomes a mountain of debt, right? And so that is really what we are trying to kind of like, you know, tackle with the root cause of. Yeah, and just to give some of our audiences a little bit of context about how much three trillion is, it's the GDP of Spain two times over. So that's how large the debt alone that you're talking about is. And I think, you know, so so often we kind of say, oh, like student debt, it's a lot, but we don't really conceptualize how big and how destructive it truly is. And, and you know, to anyone that would want to conceptualize, try writing three trillion dollars like hand or you know try typing three trillion dollars computer you'll be astounded at how large that number is and that is the number we are living breathing as americans every single day right but this is the utopian um and i wanted to give you a little bit of an idea as to how we came to that name Mm -hmm. So in 2010, historian Tony Jute released a book called Ill Fares the Land. And in that book, he talked about how 
we are currently living in a society that is recycling political, social, and economic systems that have been proven not to work in the past. And he critiqued that we have become less imaginative as a society in the way that we decide the changes that we want to pursue. And in his critique, he said that we have stopped imagining utopias. So, um, you know, Caroline, and we have one, one other person in on our team, his name is Dalvin, we all kind of got together and we said, why not form the utopian and just gather a bunch of really interesting people to talk about their utopias, mm-hmm. just to kind of get that imagination going. So what is your utopia? I think it's a little more complex than a world in which banking fees don't exist, because a lot of the problems that you are pointing to are rooted in bigger issues like income inequality or imbalance of power in society. So what does your utopia look like? And what exactly is it that Harvest Platform is trying to achieve on a larger social scale? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you said it uh, accurately. It's not just our, our idea of utopia is not just a world in which fees don't exist. It is part of that utopia for sure. But, you know, when we think about a financial utopia, and I'm going to focus just on the financial aspects of the utopia itself, there's a lot of things that need to happen from a social, economic, sorry, uh, environmental and, you know, in, in general, like, you know, health perspectives uh, in, uh, from, uh, for the formation of the perfect utopia. But in terms of a financial utopia that I envision, it's a world without any bad debt, right? It's not a world without credit. I don't think there is an actual utopia that does not become a dystopia in, the, in, the, in lack of credit. But it is a world without any form of bad debt. It is a world in which credit exists in a very productive way and it is used to uplift people's lifestyles rather than bring them down. And I think it is a world in which people have sustainable income in which you know they are not really once again you know feeling that constant nagging fear of what do I do up until my next paycheck hits? How do I pay off my debt? Like you know it's a world without any kind of those concerns that come, you know, is um, bolstered by sustainable forms of income in which every single person is financially healthy. And I don't think we are that far away from having that utopia. I feel like it's a completely achievable dream. There are a mix of, you know, um, once again, um, you know, regulatory and social changes that need to happen for us to get to that, you know, uh, get to that state. But I do think it is something that is doable and it is something that can be achievable within our lifetimes. Um, and I, I, I would love to see before I die that, you know, everybody, every American is able to live a very healthy, fulfilling life without that constant nagging of debt. And uh, we're doing our part. We're trying to make our dent in the universe, uh, you know, towards creating this financial utopia. What we are doing is minimizing the debt profile of Americans and literally trying to move them to more productive forms of credit. We have also invented this proprietary modeling that establishes alternative credit that can, you know, encourage people to take less debt and become more financially healthy and you know really uh, get people to focus on the bigger the bigger issues in their life which is about you know 
their happiness, their prosperity, them getting time to spend with their families and, you know, not really always being focused on that sword that is hanging over your head. So uh, we are building technology that does it right now, one negotiation at a time and one machine learning decision at a time.